Cottywomple with the Shadow People is a narrative podcast about friendship, magic, mystery, and the divine feminine. This podcast sometimes deals with topics of a sensitive nature, so listener discretion is advised. Content warning. This episode contains use of an abortifacient and implied unenthusiastic consent. To become the perfect mother, she had to become the perfect wife. To be the perfect wife, she had to be the perfect student under her own perfect mother's tutelage. To be the perfect student, she had to be the perfect girl. She has done so many things in the pursuit of perfection, and now, to keep up her perfect facade, she will have to cottywomple with the shadow people. Episode 9 The Perfect Mother Little Miss Junie was a bright and beautiful little girl. Her hair fell in perfectly coiffed ringlets, and her ribbons never slipped out of place. Her dress was always clean because she never played too roughly outdoors. Her personality was... Well, she never really had the chance to develop one. She never talked about her favorite things or hobbies. Her mother always said that children should be seen and not heard. The closest thing she had to a hobby were her dolls. At the age of three, she had been given a collection of rag dolls. But by the age of six, those soft dolls that brought her comfort were taken away and replaced with porcelain baby dolls. Her mother said that it was time that she practiced taking care of delicate babies. When she turned nine, she asked her mother for art supplies, but she was given a sewing kit and a yard of fabric so she could make clothes for her baby dolls. Messy paints were for messy girls, her mother had said, and she was not a messy girl. On her twelfth birthday, her mother gave her her very first cookbook. She learned to make pastries for the tea parties she held with her dolls. At fifteen, her mother decided that she was old enough to start wearing makeup. Only powder, blush, and pink lipstick, of course. Only shadow people painted their eyes up, her mother would say. The day she turned eighteen, her mother took away her porcelain dolls. She said that Junie was much too old to play with dolls, and that it was time to start taking care of real babies. In lieu of a birthday present, her mother took her for a consultation with the town matchmaker, Aphrodite. Junie never understood how a twice-married divorcee would make a good matchmaker, but she knew better than to question her mother. At the consultation, Junie hardly spoke. She just sat there and smiled as her mother talked up and in some ways embellished her positive attributes and downplayed her negative ones. Aphrodite said it would not be hard to find a husband for such a beautiful and mild-mannered girl. She complimented her mother for raising such an agreeable young woman. True to her word, Aphrodite found the perfect match for Junie within a week. His name was Joseph Ray Jupiter III, and he was next in line to run his father's factory on the south side of town. No one really knew what the factory produced, but they knew it was important. 
The matchmaker set the perfect girl up with her perfect match on a perfect date at the perfect restaurant. Junie introduced herself demurely before extending her hand, which the young man delicately kissed, before saying, You can call me Joe Ray. The perfect date became a perfectly short engagement before a perfect wedding. As vows were exchanged and kisses were shared, Junie's mother watched her perfect little girl become the perfect bride. The first year of wedded bliss played out very much the way Junie expected it to. They honeymooned on the mountain of brass before returning to live on his family's estate near the factory. The couple spent their days being trained by Joe Ray's parents on how to properly run the factory and care for the estate. And they spent their nights trying to conceive a perfect son. By the end of the year, Junie was with child. The pregnancy was anything but perfect. She was sick and bedridden for the majority of it, but she bore it with grace. A perfect wife did not complain to her perfect husband about carrying their perfect child. After a troublesome first trimester, the doctor ordered her to stay in bed for the remainder of her pregnancy, much to the chagrin of her mother-in-law. Joe Ray's mother would constantly make snide remarks about Junie's laziness. She told her that a proper expectant mother should be getting a nursery ready, not laying about in bed. Junie did not want to disappoint her new family, but she also did not want to risk hurting her baby. So she spent her pregnancy knitting baby blankets, socks, and hats. This did not stop her mother-in-law's rude comments, but it did make her feel better. Junie did end up delivering a perfect baby, but she was not a perfect baby boy. Joe Ray was not disappointed by the fact that his firstborn was a bouncing baby girl until he realized that his parents were. His father was adamant that the factory had to be passed down from father to son. Either she gives you a boy or you find a woman who will. His father said these words in front of Junie as she nursed her newborn. The new mother barely had any time to bond with her daughter Bella before Joe Ray started trying for a boy. Try as she might, she could not find the enthusiasm for lovemaking that she once had. Her body had not quite recovered from the pregnancy or the birth, but she did not dare tell her husband that. The perfect wife did not deny her husband or reject his advances. After six months, she found herself pregnant again. She did not think it could be possible, but this pregnancy was even worse than the first. Not only did she feel even more sick than she did the first time, but now she had a fussy baby to care for. Her mother-in-law was happy to help with baby Bella, but her nasty comments continued. Poor little Bella! Your mama is too busy knitting in bed to look after you. Each word was like a knife to Junie's heart. All she ever wanted was to be a mother, a perfect mother, and now she couldn't even play with her firstborn. After another painful and difficult birth, Junie delivered the much-desired son, Joseph Ray Jupiter IV. As she held her son in her arms, she smiled up at her husband, 
hoping that her marriage could once again be perfect. And for a while it was. The young Mr. and Mrs. Jupiter and their two beautiful children seemed to be the quintessential happy family. Joe Ray's father had retired so that he and his wife could have time to dote on their grandchildren. Joe Ray had taken over as owner of the factory, and Junie once again dedicated herself to being the perfect wife, daughter-in-law, and mother. A month after little Joseph was born, Joe Ray tried to initiate romance with his wife. Junie loved her husband, of course, and she loved being intimate with him, but every time he tried to kiss her or touch her, she thought about pregnancy and the pain and illness that came with it. And no matter how much she tried, her body would not respond the way she wanted it to. She tried to assure her husband that she wanted to be with him more than anything, but she was still just a bit tender from the birth. After weeks of rejecting his advances, he became cold. He would say things like, My mother never went through anything like this with her pregnancies. She says you're just overreacting. Junie begged him for patience and understanding, but her pleas fell on deaf ears. After a while, he became less persistent. She noticed that he would stay later and later at the factory. She also noticed that he frequented the Morning Star Inn. At night, she would lie in bed alone and whisper to herself, So much for being the perfect wife. She was happy that her in-laws took such a vested interest in the children, though she would have been happier if they did not contradict or question every parenting decision that she made. If she spent too much time with the children, they would say that she's neglecting the housework. But whenever she cleaned the house, they would say she was not focusing on the children enough. If she let them explore the house and the yard as curious children are wont to do, the grandparents would criticize her for raising wild ruffians. If she held them too much, kissed them too much, she was told that she was spoiling them with too much affection. Sometimes the criticism would prove too much for the young mother and she would snap at them. But this would just earn the ire of both her in-laws and her husband. Each time she was chastised, she would hold back tears and think to herself, so much for being the perfect daughter-in-law. When the condemnation and loneliness was too great to bear, she would visit her mother in hopes of receiving a little sympathy. Her hopes were in vain. Whenever she would describe her plight, she would be interrupted by her mother's to be a woman is to suffer speech. There is not a married woman on this earth who gets along with their in-laws. I may have cried at your grandmother's funeral, but I would never let your father know how elated I was. And if you continue to deny your husband, then don't be surprised in twenty years when a bastard child shows up on your front door demanding their share of the inheritance. Every woman expects a fairy tale life once the wedding is over, but the sooner you learn and accept that to be a woman is to suffer, the more content you'll be. Now keep the children quiet and well-behaved. Be sweet to your in-laws, but hope for their quick and peaceful demise. Make sure dinner is hot and your bed is warm. 
and give your husband as much love and children as your body will allow. Junie took her mother's words to heart. She resolved herself to bear her burden with grace. She would be available to her husband, agreeable to her in-laws, and raise her children the way she was raised. She would be perfect. Thirteen years had passed since Junie had become the young Mrs. Jupiter, and in those thirteen years, she had become everything that her mother raised her to be. Her house was always immaculately clean, her husband was always satisfied at the dinner table and in the bedroom, she only had to drag him out of the Morning Star Inn a few times a year, her figure remained slight and girlish despite four pregnancies, and her children were beautiful, clean, and above all else, perfect. Over the years, she had learned to hide every emotion that was less than perfect. She hid her exhaustion with heavy amounts of powder and blush. She hid her hunger pains with an ever-tightening girdle. She hid her relief at her mother-in-law's passing behind a handkerchief at the funeral. And she hid her pregnancy pains and sickness through fake smiles and midnight tears when she knew that her sobs would be drowned out by the sound of her husband's snores. Whenever she felt like all the pain and exhaustion was too much to bear, she would hear her mother's words in her head. To be a woman is to suffer. The almost decade and a half of pain and perceived perfection had darkened her sanguine nature. She was pessimistic and judgmental of almost everyone in town, even her close friends. Behind her overly critical nature lurked the green eyes of envy. She would never admit to being jealous of how effortlessly happy the other housewives seemed to be, or how she craved the independence attained by the women who pursued their careers. She would certainly never let anyone know how she longed for the freedom that came with being a moon woman or a shadow person. All of these desires were locked away in the steel lockbox where her heart once was. So she mocked her happy housewife friends and called them dim-witted. She shamed the working women for their lack of wedding rings and their lack of children. And she would always refer to the shadowy people who lived on the outskirts of town as wicked and vile. The only people who were safe from her cynicism were her five children. Her firstborn, Bella, had just turned 12 and had received a cookbook for her birthday, just as she did. Junie tried not to notice the doodles that she left in the margins of the book. She also ignored her daughter's pleas for paints and paintbrushes, just as her mother had. Messy paints were for messy girls, after all. Her oldest son, Joseph Jr., spent his afternoons after school with his father. In a few years, he would leave school to be a full-time apprentice at the factory. At the dinner table, he had a habit of drumming a steady rhythm with his utensils, as if the dinner table was a giant drum. She would gently admonish this and remind him that he was too old for such foolishness. Her eight-year-old twins, Phoebe and Harvey, were beautiful, sweet-natured children, but they were a bit rambunctious. 
As much as she loved them, she was always happy for those few hours of respite during the school days. When they were home, she let them play outside more than she ever let the oldest two. Her mother and mother-in-law always warned against raising feral children, but if she did not let them get their energy out, they would tear up the house. When Phoebe turned six, Junie gave her porcelain dolls just as her mother had. But unlike her mother, she did not take her rag dolls away. She told herself it was because she wanted her young daughter to have dolls that she could play with outside. But secretly, she did not want to take away the soft dolls that brought Phoebe so much comfort as she cuddled them at night. Harvey was more of an enigma to his mother. She loved him, but she never quite understood him. Her youngest baby, one-year-old Regina, was her pride and joy, her miracle baby. She doted on her and treated her like the finest piece of china. All of her pregnancies were rough, but the last one with Regina almost killed them both. The only reason they both survived the birth was because her mother made a clandestine call to Minerva, the midwife, in the middle of the night, after all of Dr. Adams' efforts had failed. The couple would never admit to accepting help from a shadow person, though. As strict and as overbearing as she was, Junie loved her children more than anything. She wanted them to be well-behaved and grow into proper adults. But she also wanted something for them that her mother never cared if she had. Happiness. She wanted them to be content with their future choices. She never wanted them to live with regret. And selfishly, she wondered if it was possible for her to live vicariously through her children's happiness. She had heard older people say that one is only as happy as their least happiest child. But she was now wondering if she would even live to see their future happiness, because she found herself pregnant once again, and she wasn't sure if she would survive this one. She did not want to believe that she was with child, but waking up three nights in a row with the need to expel the contents of her stomach was all the proof that she needed. Her mother told her that it was difficult to get pregnant while nursing, but she did not say it was impossible. The day after she realized, she held Regina close to her as she fed from her milk. She studied her tiny hands and her loose curls and wondered if she only had nine months left with her. She wondered what would happen if she died giving birth one last time. There was no way that her husband would be able to raise the children on his own. Would he remarry and let someone new watch her sons grow into men? Would the new wife take her girls to the matchmaker when they came of age? Would the new mother hold Regina as she cried and screamed for her true mother? Or would Joe Ray split up the family and send the girls to boarding school while keeping the boys at the factory? She could not let some other woman raise her family, and she could not let her family be broken apart. She could not let herself die. She only had one option. She had to go visit the midwife at the chateau. Miss Junie Jupiter had to plan her day out perfectly. 
she had to make sure it was a Wednesday. On Wednesdays, Joe Ray and Joseph Jr. stayed late at the factory. She also had to make sure that it was a day where her mother could watch Bella, Phoebe, and Harvey after school until dusk. She was not sure how long she would need to recover after visiting the chateau, so she wanted to give herself as much time as possible. She got the children ready for school at sunup and saw them off. She straightened up the kitchen table after breakfast. She did not have to worry about cleaning the house because she made sure everything was spotless the night before while her family slept. She dressed herself in her least eye-catching outfit, a plain tan dress and a face-concealing sun hat. Regina was nestled safely in her pram and $50 was nestled safely in her change purse. After the front door lock was checked three times, she set out for the large green house on the other side of town. She was too nervous to walk through the center of town, so she made sure to stick to the paths that connected the outskirts. On the unlikely chance that she ran into someone she knew, she would just say that she was on her way to the crossroads to pay her respects to her mother-in-law, whom she missed terribly and definitely didn't resent. As she walked, she began to feel a twinge of sadness and regret. All she ever wanted was to be a mother to as many children as possible, and now she was on her way to get rid of one. Her steps slowed as she wondered if perhaps she could try to go through with it one more time. Maybe she and the baby would survive. She and Regina survived last time. I mean, sure, the pain was unbearable, she said out loud to no one. And I could feel myself and my baby dying, but... She was pulled out of her one-person conversation by the sound of Regina's coo. She looked down in the pram and saw the baby girl's mouth open in a wide yawn before falling back asleep. That coo and yawn strengthened Junie's resolve. She was not going to let herself be pulled away from the daughter who still needed her. After walking for what seemed like hours, she came across a large green house that seemed too large for the small meadow it sat in. She picked up Regina, left the pram by the porch steps, and took a few deep breaths before walking up to the door and knocking. After 15 excruciating seconds, the door was opened by a woman with bright green eyes who Junie recognized as Mr. Morgenstern's daughter, Aradia. She stared at the prim and proper woman and said, Whatever you're selling, we're not buying. I'm not here to sell you anything, Junie said quickly before Aradia could slam the door in her face. I'm seeking the services of the midwife. Aradia looked Junie up and down and glanced at the baby in her arms, before stepping aside to let them both in. Aradia led the perfect mother to the kitchen and told her to wait there while she fetched the midwife. A few moments later, a young woman with copper-colored hair walked in and asked, "'Can I help you, ma'am?' Junie was perplexed. "'You're not the woman who helped me last year.' The copper-haired woman smiled sweetly. No, that must have been Minerva. She's retired now, and I'm the new midwife. My name's Lilith. 
It's nice to meet you. Junie did not shake the hand that was extended towards her. I want you to know I'm not like the other women who come here. I'm not some dumb harlot or farm girl who got knocked up. I have a good reason for seeking your... services. Her face scrunched as she said services. Lilith's smile became gentler as she motioned for Junie to sit. With all due respect, miss... Lilith trailed off. Jupiter, Mrs. Jupiter. I've only been doing this for a little over half a year, but I have met a number of people from several walks of life seeking certain services. They all have their reasons, and it's not for me to judge whether they're good or bad reasons. A reason is a reason, and that's good enough for me. All Junie could do was nod. Lilith called Aradia into the kitchen to put the kettle on before asking, And who is this little one? This is Regina. I had to bring her. She's still nursing, you see, and I didn't want to be away from her for too long. It's perfectly all right. Is this your only child? No, I have five. Three girls and two boys. Five? Aradia exclaimed as she walked in. You don't need a midwife, you need separate beds. Lilith shot Aradia a stern look, but then turned back to Junie and said, Well, the little one sure seems happy and healthy. You must be a good mama. Junie looked down to hide the tears that were threatening to spill. A good mother would not come here. I'm no better than the mayor's wife. I should be sitting in a jail cell right next to her. First of all, Aradia interjected, watch what you say. That woman is my aunt. Second of all, she's innocent. She would never hurt her child. Aradia! Lilith scolded before calmly asking, Can you please fetch the nightdress for me? Aradia rolled her eyes and left the room. Junie raised her eyebrows when Lilith said nightdress and informed her that she would not be staying the night. Lilith assured her that she required all of her clients to wear a nightdress so that their own clothes wouldn't be ruined. Junie swallowed hard before asking if it would hurt. It's not pleasant. The cramps are painful, but manageable. We recommend that people stay here for two hours after they drink the Penny Royal Tea. Will you be able to stay that long? Junie shivered and nodded. Lilith noted her apprehension. Mrs. Jupiter, I don't mean to overstep, but are you sure you want to do this? Have you considered other options? Before Junie could scream at Lilith to mind her own business, she burst into tears and sobs, which caused her baby to burst into tears and sobs. Lilith did her best to console her as Aradia walked in with the nightdress and a what-did-I-miss look on her face. Lilith gently took Regina from her mother and handed her to Aradia, before wrapping her arms around the crying woman. I don't have options. This pregnancy could kill me. I can't let myself die. I have four children to think about. Lilith and Aradia shared a puzzled glance, before the former said, Mrs. Jupiter... I thought you said you had five children. 
Junie's face froze, though her body still racked with sobs. Um, yes. I'm sorry. I have five children. I'm just not thinking straight. The Dirt Woman and Storm Woman decided to drop the subject for now. Lilith waited for Junie to settle down before asking the standard questions she had to ask. She asked how far along she was, and Junie answered a little over four weeks. Lilith asked how much she weighed. Junie offered her standard false answer, which made the midwife shoot her an incredulous look. Now is not the time to be vain, Miss Jupiter. I have to take your weight into consideration when measuring out the penny royal. Without the right information, the concoction could be deadly. Junie answered truthfully. Lilith instructed the mother to change into the nightdress while she brewed the tea. Junie changed in the powder room, and when she returned, there was a cup of tea sitting on the table. She didn't let herself think twice, because she didn't want to lose her nerve. She quickly grabbed the cup and downed the contents. She was not expecting it to taste so bitter. After coughing and gagging for a few seconds, she looked at Lilith with a now what expression. Now we wait. When you start cramping, we'll go outside. I'll be by your side the whole time. As they waited, Lilith informed the mother that it would be best to feed the baby formula for the next few weeks, just in case the penny royal contaminated her milk. Junie nodded and watched Aradia play with Regina. Lilith tried to make small talk to comfort Mrs. Jupiter. What are your children's names? My other girls are Bella and Phoebe, and my son is named Joseph Jr. Lilith waited expectantly for the next name before realizing that Junie said son, not sons. Before Lilith could question her about it, the mother clutched her stomach in pain. The midwife hastened her out the back door. They walked to the edge of the woods, and Lilith helped Junie brace herself against a tree. She held the woman's hand and patted her back as the penny royal took effect. After an agonizingly long time, the cramping subsided. As Lilith tried to steady her client, Junie collapsed into her arms and buried her face into her shoulder and cried. She cried from the pain. She cried for the baby she couldn't have. She cried in relief that the pain from the penny royal was not as bad as her pregnancies. She cried for the suffering that came with womanhood. She cried at her lack of perfection. And Lilith held her through it all. When they started walking back to the chateau, they were met by Aradia, who handed the baby girl to Lilith. The midwife directed Junie to the washroom and handed her her dress. A few minutes later, Mrs. Jupiter emerged looking pale, but sophisticated in her tan ensemble. Can I hold my baby, please? Lilith handed her the sweet little girl before offering to make the child some formula. Junie held Regina close, careful not to squeeze too hard, and followed the woman who saved her life into the kitchen. After a few moments, the perfect mother began telling a story that she had never told anybody. She wasn't sure why she started telling it. She only knew that it had been trapped in her lockbox heart for too long. Eight years ago, 
I was eight months pregnant with Phoebe. Late one night, my husband and I were woken up by a loud pounding on the front door. My husband went down to answer it, and soon I, I heard arguing. I walked downstairs and saw a sickly young woman holding a baby boy who, who looked just like my husband. Joe Ray tried to get her to leave, even offered her money. She said that she was dying and that she had to leave her son with his father. Maybe it was my pregnant brain that made me feel for the child, or maybe I was just trying to protect my family's reputation. But I took the child. And before she left, she said his name was Harvey. The stress of it all made me go into labor a few days later. We told our friends and family that I had twins, and that Harvey was just big for a newborn. Every time I look at him, I want to kill my husband. Joe Ray has never even apologized or thanked me for raising his son. I'm ashamed to say I'm not as affectionate to the boy as I should be because I just don't know how to be. But I do love him. As much as I can, anyway. Lilith listened intently and without judgment. After a couple of minutes, Junie said she had to go. The midwife walked her out and helped situate Regina in her pram before handing her a bottle. Junie pulled the $50 from her change purse, and when Lilith took the bills, Junie grabbed her hand and whispered, Thank you. Lilith told her to call if she experienced any complications and saw her off. Miss Junie Jupiter walked through the center of town with her head held high, knowing that she had done what was best for herself and her family. She only stopped once at the department store. She bought paints for Bella and a small drum for Joseph. She now realized that it was better to have messy and noisy children than to have perfect children. Cotty Womple with the Shadow People was created and performed by Shay Lee and edited by Jonathan Strickland. Special thanks to Lucas Ryan and Jenny Milam. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Be sure to check out Moon Chasers, the other podcast I host with my friend and beta reader Jenny Milam and our other friend Ursula Undress. Moon Chasers is a podcast where we talk about tarot, movies, books, feminism, astrology, and all things witchy, sometimes with wine. You can also check out the podcast that my editor and dear friend Jonathan hosts with our other friend Ariel Caston called Large Nerdron Collider. Listen to two charming nerds talk about the geeky things that make their hearts happy.